All right, we are back. One of the big stories this week was President Obama addressing the nation. He did so twice this week, once in an address to America's school kids and once to the uh, Congress of the United States and, of course, the American people on television. We watched yesterday's speech before Congress and thought, you know, it looked incredibly good. It appeared to this correspondent that uh, the president was doing such a great job of addressing the issues uh, of health care reform to the American public that it was going to be tough for the opposition to blunt it. But let's see what the response is and comment on it for next week's program. As a practicing physician, I have come to the conclusion that something must be done. And when the president talks about the amount of waste that is in administration and the amount of waste that is inherent in a system that operates on uh, private insurance, well, you know, he so, so has a point. People accuse this new proposal of being socialized medicine. Well, ladies and gentlemen, we have had socialized medicine in this country for a long time now. It's just corporate socialized medicine. Yes, bureaucracies are stupid, and yes, the government isn't always uh, capable of delivering the best care, at least based on my experience in the VA system. But I do believe the president is right when he says that if we can take the money uh, that's going to administration and redirect that into actual health care, that could go a long way toward paying for the necessary reforms. But at the time, several years ago, it was reported that the Germans, for example, were spending 8% of their health care dollars on the administration of their various health care systems. In America, the comparable figure was 38%. That's 38% that goes toward administrators and executives and guys that sit around drinking a lot of coffee and deciding how they're going to improve things um, through new rules and regulations, which in general are reminiscent of that famous line from uh, that uh, classic medical book, The House of God, where one of the medical residents' uh, oft-repeated line was, show me a medical student who only triples my work and I'll kiss his feet. It's been my experience in a quarter century of medicine that if you can show me an administrator that only triples our work, I might kiss his feet. They pay these guys big bucks, and I mean big bucks. One guy had the displeasure of working under, uh, well, let's just say some years back, was pulling down, I believe, $385,000 to be an administrator, which was, I think, over triple what he was making when he was a doctor. He amply demonstrated that his administrative skills were probably not sufficient to regulate a kindergarten hopscotch game, and yet he was telling a couple hundred doctors what they could and could not do. Of course, if the truth be told, he'd been handpicked by the powers that be, those that controlled the purse strings of the operation, and I don't mind expressing my opinion that uh, the fact that he was a stooge was considered by them to be a good thing. So I personally have no doubt that we could do a lot better if we took money away from people that aren't really productive in the medical system and gave it to those who were. There was an article in the Sacramento Bee preparatory to uh, the president's speech, which did note that his primetime address to Congress was poised to draw some lines in the sand over the size and shape of legislation to remake our nation's health care system. But the article uh, in the Sacramento Bee by Bobby Kaina Calvan, I mean, could have been written 20 years ago. Well, at least the upshot of it could have been that we need more primary care practitioners, family practice docs, etc. When I graduated uh, back in the 1980s, 
A lot of us opted to go into primary care. I did. I did a family practice residency. But I'd say that uh, my colleagues and myself, I would say that my colleagues and I generally found that uh, there were an awful lot of hoops to jump through. It was a big mess. And above all else, we weren't being paid very well, which meant that an awful lot of people did what I did, which was work basically in emergency rooms and urgent cares. Most re- the most recent stats are kind of grim. Noted, uh, noted the article, in, in 2008, California's eight medical schools produced 1,070 new doctors. Only 87 of them became residents in family medicine. Of the 90 graduates at UC Davis's medical school, only 10 opted for family medicine. Meanwhile, over at Stanford, just two of its 97 graduates did so. Note of the article, rather obviously, enticed by higher salaries and the prospect of less paperwork, the vast majority of medical students, now about 9 in 10, opt for specialty careers such as cosmetic surgery. According to the article, a typical family practitioner earns $150,000 annually, which sounds pretty good, doesn't it? Well, except that specialists can earn two to five times that amount, sometimes even more than that. And when you figure in $150,000, I've got some friends I went to medical school with that are out earning probably close to that. All I can say is the personal toll it takes upon them to work as hard as they do for that kind of earning earning, all the while facing the possible pot shots by uh, trial lawyers and all the restrictions of the bureaucracies they're trying to operate in and all the paperwork, well, it, it's, it's not that much money. I'm, I'm quite, quite certain that most plumbers I know are doing better than most family practitioners I know, at least on a per-hour basis. That's because, and the, the reason, yeah, the plumbers aren't probably making as much is because they're not putting in the hours. If they did, I'm pretty confident they'd make more. I don't know. I am shooting from the hip when I say that, but I do know a lot of doctors and I know a few plumbers. And uh, I'm, I'm pretty sure that if you went hour by hour, the plumbers are ahead. And they're not facing uh, potential massive lawsuits for malpractice. And they're not being restricted by guidelines of whose houses they can plumb or not plumb. The article does note that health care legislation pending in Congress aims to increase incentives for primary care physicians, specifically family doctors, pediatricians, general internists, and geriatricians, who are in fact the workhorse of the country's medical corps. Anyway, article in The, in the Economist, July 18th issue, uh, worthy of some quoting too, I think, talking about the operators of America's hospitals are offering to, um, to uh, cut costs, noted the magazine. On the ground that they provide charitable care, many religious and community hospitals have been granted an exemption, allowing them to issue tax-free bonds, avoid taxes on property and income, and so on. But investigations by the Internal Revenue Service and others have revealed that many, in fact, provide very little charitable care while paying enormous salaries or going on acquisition sprees. Folks, we need health care reform in this country. And I am going to be very curious to see in the next few days how uh, the opposition tries to blunt uh, the president's speech before Congress. They'll probably take some of the same tack uh, that was used to try and uh, stop the speech that the president gave to schools across the country. Marcos Breton, writing in the Sacramento Bee, called the boycott of the Obama speech an ugly lesson. Said Marcos, the dangers to our children are looming at the classroom door. Sex education, Hollywood. President Barack Obama, 
reflecting a national furor, some Elk Grove parents pressured their school district for the option of pulling their kids out of class when Obama gave a national televised address to school kids. Typically, the Elk Grove Unified School District allows parents to opt out when provocative films are shown in class or during some sex ed discussions. Now, some seem to consider the President of the United States as objectionable as information on sexually transmitted diseases. Marcos went on, my fellow citizens, it's the President of the United States. Even if you didn't vote for the man or you disagree with his policies, he is a symbol of our enduring democracy. The seal of the United States reads E Pluribus Unum, Latin for out of many, one. Are we really so polarized that we fear Obama will slip a subliminal message into a stay-in-school pep talk? All right, final comment on things medical. Article in New Scientist magazine, July 8th. Writer Stephen Strauss asks that medical journals stop acting like the medieval church. Describing healthcare of the past 20 years as something, uh, something like the Protestant Reformation. Visit to a doctor's office was described as high church, or as a, pa- a patient entered as a supplicant, confessed symptoms to the priestly physician who would consult sacred texts written in a language nobody who hadn't spent 12 years studying could understand. He then returned with a diagnosis and treatment whose, whose language the patient was also unlikely to comprehend. Well, Mr. Strauss has a point. Often when I talk to patients, I will tell them what their diagnosis is. For example, well, sir, this is a case of onychomycosis. I'll generally add, which you have to admit, sounds a lot better than toenail fungus. Yes, Strauss has a point. One of my favorite jokes in medicine is the following. The patient tells you what he has in English. The doctor then tells the patient what he has in Latin. Noted Strauss, when the internet came along, suddenly ordinary people could consult the holy texts themselves. Noting that in 2008, the Pew Internet and American Life Project found that three-quarters of Internet users search for health information online. Unfortunately, the best information, which comes in peer-reviewed articles, is still written as if only the priesthood will consult it. Studies have shown that medical articles often have a readability score equal to that of the densest of legal documents. One result is that the information people get, at least from the Internet, is often at variance with journal articles. Strauss proposes a simple solution. Translate medical texts into graphical plain speak, which journals would require their authors to use if they want to be published. This is going to be a very difficult goal to achieve, but uh, I must say I have been, I've been astounded over the years at how poorly articles are written and how poorly physicians communicate sometimes and how poorly continuing medical education classes are presented. I had the displeasure a couple of months ago of attending a conference, which, you know, doctors have to do to keep up on stuff, and saw lecturer after lecturer present a PowerPoint slideshow that was just a disgrace. Uh, properly presented, a PowerPoint presentation should amplify uh, what, what the data that someone's trying to give to an audience. It, it should make it easier to understand. But in general, it just seems to make it so much worse. Time after time, someone would would say, for example, the results of this study showed that the first group had an 87% cure rate, and the second group had a 74% cure rate. They would then show you a bar graph as if they were two skyscrapers, one 87 stories high and the other 74. 
My feeling was that most people in the audience had a pretty good intuitive grasp of the relationship of those two numbers. That did not require graphical representation. But because the guy's got a PowerPoint and he can do it, he makes up a slide that shows you that. Many slides, and I mean a great many, were actually comical in how incomprehensible they were and just simply unreadable. I have noted that the internet seems to have had a positive effect on, on scientific writing because if you want to get a lot of hits and you want to get read, well, it needs to be comprehensible. Therefore, the articles that are comprehensible tend to get a lot of hits. They come up higher on page rank and they sort of go to the head of the class. So there's some hope here. But it does remind me of the fact that just because you have a tool that's, that's, that can be more accurate or more precise, it doesn't mean you get better analysis or, or better presentation. For example, if, if, I might if you'll allow me to digress slightly, when I first got to college, the pocket calculator was still a relative novelty. We still did our calculations using slide rules. Now, unlike a calculator, a slide rule doesn't come with a decimal point. So one of the things you had to do when you were using a slide rule was estimate the ballpark area of where your answer needed to come out. For example, you'd estimate that the answer is going to come out somewhere between, say, 300 and 700. So therefore, you knew right away when the answer came back 2.74 that you were off. Once the calculator came out, people just punched in numbers and <laughs> pushed plus or minus or whatever and took what came up on the screen, or at least seemed to more readily. All right, let's segue out of medicine with this little item. According to the BBCnews.com, Stanford researcher Al Ofer noticed the fact that you, these days you see a lot of people walking around multitasking. So the good folks at Stanford decided to see what it is these multitaskers are good at that enables them to do this. And the surprising answer they got was nothing. Ofer and colleagues categorized subjects into two groups, high and low multitaskers. That was according to the amount of electronic information they typically consumed. They then ran them through several experiments designed to test the skills that multitaskers ostensibly possess. To test their ability to ignore irrelevant information, for example, subjects were shown, well, they were shown some distractions. The punchline, high multitaskers consistently scored much worse. They were less able to ignore distractions, had more fallible memories, and couldn't switch to new tasks as readily. Thus, the shocking discovery of the research was that high multitaskers are lousy at everything that's necessary for multitasking. They're suckers for irrelevancy, said one researcher. Everything distracts them. Left unclear in this research is why chronic multitaskers fail. Is it because they're naturally bad at focusing, so they multitask to compensate? Or does the multitasking actively degrade their ability to concentrate? My vote is for the latter. And I would agree with the punchline of this study that, uh, that no matter what the reason is, the lesson in the end is the same. If you want to get more done, try doing less. You know, we're getting a little intense here. It's time for a, a, an, article, an article from the AW file. How about this one? A bus driver in Argentina's San Juan province, Alberto Rios, returned a suitcase containing 1.8 million pesos, about 460,000 U.S. dollars, to a passenger who had left it on Rios's bus. Rios found the money while inspecting the vehicle at the end of the shift. 
He retraced his route and found the owner, a businessman who'd been carrying the money for his company. <laughs> this is the part I don't like. He rewarded Rios with $80. Said Rios, there are things that test you. My father always told me what belongs to you is yours, and what does not is not yours. Left unresolved by this is why, <laughs> why the jackass who just got $460,000 back thought $80 was a suitable reward for the man's honesty. Anyway, Alberto Rios, we salute you. All right, here's one that's definitely not from the aw file. It was reported last week that NBC's Today Show has hired someone with White House experience as a new correspondent. That would be former first daughter Jenna Bush Hager. Hager, a 27-year-old teacher in Baltimore, will contribute stories about once a month on issues related to education for television's top-rated morning show. Apparently, the show's executive producer, Jim Bell, said he got the idea after seeing Hager in two Today Show appearances. Noting, she just sort of popped to us as a natural presence, comfortable on the air. Yes, I'm sure it was her poise that got her the job. Anyway, let's take a break in a minute. Before we go, I want to quote from a rather funny a piece in the news, Sacramento News and Review by Kel Munger, commenting a couple months ago about the arrest of Henry Louis Gates. Wrote Kel, I once left a woman hogtied, belly down in a jail cell, then I added assault and interference with official acts charges to the public intoxication charge that had gotten her arrested and turned over to me for bookkeeping. I'd kept my limited temper in check when she called me a hefty heifer, but once she mule kicked me in the knee, the flex cuffs came out, and this short, fat chick could have won a rodeo prize for my quick work. And I, as I left her there in the cell, I leaned down and said, Moo. It's called an attitude arrest, or sometimes an attitude ticket. That's when there's some discretion in the matter before us, but your bad freaking attitude just made me decide not to use any. She added, based on my experience, I suspect that Henry Louis Gates was the victim of an attitude arrest. Adding, you'd think he'd be allowed to have a bad attitude on his own front porch, though. She went on, it may have been because the town-gown divide is nowhere sharper than between the boys and girls and blue and liberal professors. Or it might have been that because the sergeant was having a bad day, or it might have been because I never in my life met a shift cop who appreciated being talked down to by a well-educated citizen. Adding, or it might have been because Professor Gates is a black man. Anyway, Kel Munger does some pretty good stuff with the News and Review. She's never been on this show. We may need to correct that. Let us take a break. I'm Douglas Everett. You're listening to Radio Parallax. Hey! 